I think that sometimes we can stand in the presence of God like we do tonight and we can forget what an incredible privilege and rare privilege it is to feel what we feel here. To be in the company of so many people who are not trying to perform, who are not trying to serve themselves to us, but where all are truly seeking to serve God and to give everything to Him. It's a privilege. It's a holy place. Amen. And I, I just want to say thank you to God for what we feel in this place already tonight. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Brother Gabe did not know what was on my heart. He and I did not confer as to what we would share before the meeting. And I suppose it wouldn't surprise you, though, if I told you that he really introduced the very thing I want to talk about tonight. Amen? The title of what I have tonight, I didn't know what to name it, so to, to save the file, I typed in Motives and Letdowns. Motives and Letdowns. I look out tonight and I could probably find a dozen or more people. I don't even know your name. You're new to us. Welcome to all of you. But I'm going to speak tonight, not like we have a house full of people I don't know, but like we're family. Because we must have a kindred spirit or else you wouldn't be here tonight. Amen? Motives and letdowns. I want to talk about how we get let down. How we get disappointed. You know, we've been told many times that the literal meaning of disappointment is to miss an appointment. And I think that that really does describe the strongest feelings of disappointment that I've had. When I had some great excitement, some anticipation or expectation about an event, an encounter, a season, an adventure, and I got there and it didn't come to pass like I expected. And some people say, oh, I was fooled. There was nothing really there all the while. I was just tricked. It was a mirage. It was a fantasy. And others, like the two men on the road to Emmaus, they feel disappointed. They were supposed to encounter something that they didn't encounter. They were supposed to meet someone and they never rendezvoused. They somehow missed the appointment. Amen. And I think of the story of the man who wrote that, that parable back in 1700s England 
Great ex no, not great expectation. The Beast in the Jungle. How many of you ever read The Beast in the Jungle? Well, good. It's not all of you. He tells a story about this man who lives his life with this growing feeling of expectation in his heart. And so taken and seized by this expectation is he that he begins to defer many of the immediate choices and opportunities that present themselves to him. He begins to defer them because he's saving himself for this great expectation, this great exciting moment that's going to come. It's just around the bend. And I'm not going to butcher the story for those of you who haven't read it, but to summarize it somewhat brutally, he encounters people in his life who present him with open doors, opportunities for love, for relationship and fulfillment, for joy. But he, he shuns all of those because he's waiting for the big thing and he wants to save himself and be ready for the big thing. And somewhere about three-quarters of the way through the story, you come to realize that he is missing the big thing. And you start itching, wanting him to get it, wanting him to realize that this lady that he's very close to, that he is quite fond of, and who obviously cares about him, that she's supposed to be his wife, that they're supposed to, they're supposed to become man and wife. And, and yet it's right beneath his nose, and he doesn't see it, and... The author makes you feel that anxiety. And there are these little brushes that they have, these little exchanges where you can feel that he is just, just a millisecond away from seeing it and from saying, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the great expectation. This is the great rendezvous that I've been expecting. But he tells her all about it. And he keeps it in the abstract like some beast prowling in the jungle that he can never quite lay eyes on but that he knows is right there. And as the story goes, they get older and in time she dies and he goes by the graveyard one day and he sees this lady or this man, I don't recall, mourning by the grave of someone of their spouse. And in a flash of disappointment, he says, he sees what he's missed. And he says, I don't even have the right to mourn over the one I love and who, whom I have lost because I never took the risk. And he knows that he has missed what he's been waiting for his whole life. The man knew something about disappointment, would you agree? And I think that that's what none of us want to get to the end of our lives and realize. We don't want to get there and realize that while we were busy here and there, while we were distracting ourselves, with big things or little things, the, really th the things that really matter 
slipped right beneath our noses and we never noticed. Amen? That's what we don't want to do. Amen. But we have to be disappointed from time to time in order to learn to appreciate and recognize when and how God is moving in our lives. Amen? All of you are very familiar, but maybe there's a handful who could use reminding of what Luke records in chapter 7. His cousin, John the Baptist, has been thrown in prison, right? And John sends this message to Jesus. And he says, are you the one or do we look for another? There is a tacit disappointment in that question. And Jesus responds to him, as was quoted even Sunday, I believe. Jesus responds to him and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 35. John knew his Bible. Jesus says, The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he's quoting from, John, from Isaiah chapter 35 where Isaiah says, Behold, your God comes, and the lame shall leap like the deer, and the dumb will speak. Amen? So not only is he saying, I'm the one, but he's actually telling John the Baptist in a kind of coded message, he is saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Behold, your God comes. He's really letting John in on who he is on a level that he disclosed to very few. But Jesus adds something. He adds a clause that Isaiah didn't add. He says, tell John, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dumb speak, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he adds this phrase. He says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And the word there, offended, literally means, and it's where I got my title tonight, it could be translated literally, blessed is he who does not feel that I have let him down. There are two different kinds of offense. There is the offense of aggression or of anger towards someone. I can't believe you did that. Right? But the word offense in the Greek is more like, I can't believe you did that to me. I didn't expect you would hurt me like that. It's a, it's, it has a feeling of being let down, of being betrayed, of hopes being betrayed. Amen? Blessed is he who does not feel that I have let him down. Do you feel that God has let you down? You say, no, I, I don't think that God has let me down. I think that His people have let me down. Well, then shall I ask, do you feel let down? 
If you do, then you're the one that Gabe was speaking to and you're the one that I'm trying to speak to as well. I want to come back to this idea of how we feel let down by God, but in order to do that, I want to take a little side trip. And it's going to seem like I'm, I've left the topic, but I haven't. And some of you have heard me talk about this. Tough luck. You're going to hear it again. I want to present you with a dilemma. And if you've heard it enough times, then you'll, have, you'll be able to answer it, and I'll be able to sit down, and we'll be done. But I want to present you with a dilemma. I want you to try to think what the answer is to this dilemma. Can you engage with me for a minute? I'm going to tell you a true story as recorded in the, second, the 22nd chapter of the book of Numbers. The story is about a prophet. An exceptionally gifted prophet. A prophet who prophesied frequently and three quarters at least of his prophecies were true. A prophet who might be credited with bringing the very first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. So gifted and in tune was he that some 4,000 years before the event he is already foretelling the birth of Jesus. Amen? A prophet who, among other phrases, is famous for giving us the phrase, Behold a people set apart who do not mix themselves with the nations. Some of you know already who I'm talking about. He is the man, he is the prophet most spoken of more disparagingly and with more disrespect and disdain in the Old and New Testaments than any other prophet. His name is Balaam. He becomes the emblem of everything false, contradictory, and destructive about gifts that are not surrendered to God. Amen? But don't forget the first thing I said about him. He was an incredibly gifted man. And lo and behold, you know that an enemy of Israel came to this man. A king by the name of Balak. Please don't let me put you to sleep. Stick with me for just a minute. I'm going to give you something. I think Noah Smith was the first one to give me this question, and I didn't have the answer until a couple days later. I don't know if he was in the meeting when I got the answer that time and the ten other times since, but he's going to get it tonight because I see he's here with us. It's a very good question. I love dilemmas. I love questions. But I'm going to ask you this one in order to parlay back into this question of how we get let down. Can you stick with me? This prophet is approached by a man named Balak. Balak is a creep, my clinical definition. And he wants to cause trouble for Israel. He doesn't like the fact that Israel's passing through his country and the country of all his neighbors and emptying them out of their own land and taking it for themselves. So Balak finds this son of Beor, Balaam, and he says, I got a job for you. What's that? Balaam says, this is the, the New Living Translation or something like that. What's that, says Balaam. He said, I need you to curse God's people for me. What? <laughs> but Balaam apparently needed a job. Like many preachers, he had speaking engagements, no doubt, and he was 
dependent on the offerings that he got from those speaking engagements. <clears throat> so, he, um, he says that he's going to go with Balak, and he actually goes, and he stands there on this cliff overlooking the, the whole tr uh, nation of Israel below, all the tribes in their beautiful order, and the tabernacle of meeting in their midst, and the Spirit of God comes on him, and he blesses them. <laughs> and Balak is just all up in a tizzy and unhappy. He says, that's not what I got you here for. But Balaam blesses them a couple more times, and they part ways, and I guess he got his pay. I don't know. They might have told him they were going to cut his salary. But anyway, he goes back to his, his living, wherever he lived, and a short while later, Balak must have seen some potential in his ambitious carnal nature, Balaam's that is. So he goes back and he inquires and he says, Balaam, I need your help again. And Balaam asks the Lord, he says, can I go with this guy? I'd really like to do this. And the Lord says, uh, no, you may not. He says, I don't permit, uh, I'm not going to sanction the cursing of my people. And so Balaam goes to the Lord a second time and he says, Lord, can I please go with this guy? It reminds me of some of my little kids, but anyway. And the Lord says, no, you, you may not. And so he goes to him a third time. And he says, Lord, can I please go with this guy? Apparently he doesn't get an answer, but that night in his sleep, the Lord speaks to him in a dream. And he says, Balaam, go with the man, but speak only what I give you. So Balaam is apparently pretty excited the next morning. He's packing his lunch, saddling up his donkey, and off they go. I imagine not at a very fast pace. He was riding a donkey after all. He's going to do what God told him to do. Are you with me? Who told him to go? So why did God try to kill him in the vineyard? Lo and behold, Balaam's marching along and his donkey starts crushing his foot against the rock wall. Like all of us who know donkeys, he probably just thought it was in the donkey's nature to be kind like that. So he started repaying kindness with kindness and what happens? The donkey starts talking to him. It's a little scary, isn't it? And he tells him, look, I've served you faithfully all these years. They apparently had a different breed back there. He said, I, I've served you faithfully all these years. Why would you beat me like this? And Balaam doesn't get down on his knees and beg that the donkey stop talking. He just smart mouths right back. He says... Um, you know, because you were crushing my foot against the rock wall. <laughs> and then Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees the angel of God. I just want to read you these two verses, one that tells him to go, and then the next. Can you, hear with, can you bear with me for a minute here? One verse, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. 
Balaam arises and he goes. Here's the second verse. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely killed you just now and let her live. Why does God kill? Why does God allow this angel to nearly kill a man who's doing what he told him he could do? I'm already encouraged because all of you have heard me preach this ten times. You're not standing up and telling me. Does it trouble you just a little bit? Hmm? No? Okay. Doesn't trouble you? You go seek the Lord for something. Lord, may I do this? And the Lord says yes. And then he tries to kill you on the way to doing it. Does that trouble you? Does that bother you at all? Raise any question marks in your mind? Hmm? Because it, it really would in mine. See, Noah had a good question for me all those years at the end of the youth meeting. You remember that, Noah? He does. Anybody? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, alone search the heart, I test the mind to give to each man according to his way, according to the result of his deeds. The moral of the story is that even when we've heard from God and it looks like we're heading in the right direction, according to the permission of God, God gave us permission with conditions. And we just heard permission. We didn't hear the conditions. The permission was you can go. The condition was, but you are only allowed to do what I speak. There's a song that says, I know how I can stray, how fast my heart can change, so empty me of the selfishness inside, every vain ambition and the poison of my pride. From the moment of his encounter at night with the voice of God to the moment of his happy-go-lucky mindset as he's trotting through the vineyard, Balaam's heart has changed. He has lost that fear of God that says, I can do only what God is telling me to do. He has lost that sense of dependence that Jesus tried to bring home to us in the 15th chapter of John, the 5th verse, when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing good, that is. 
We can do much harm. But Balaam, his brain is like a yo-yo. One minute he's with God and the next minute he's with his own ambitions. On again, off again. On again, off again. He is a double-minded man. He is unstable in all his ways. Therefore, he cannot stay in the way of the Lord. The angel said, I am an adversary and I am opposed to your way. Amen? There is a way that seems right to a man and the end thereof is the way of death. And that way of death that seems right to a man, in some twisted sense, that man may be able to claim that God sent him on that way. But God looks on the heart. He looks on the secret intentions, the motivations, the subconscious inclinations that take hold of us in our feelings, in our emotions. That's what God is looking at. How many times in the ministry of Jesus does it say something like this, and Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them. Or, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, said. Hmm? Jesus said that man looks on the externals, but God looks on the, on the heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And Balaam, with a crushed foot and an encounter with a talking donkey and having faced off with an angel with a flaming sword in his hand, Balaam gets up off of that ground and he rides away toward Balak and by the time he gets there, he's forgotten it again. I know how I can stray and how fast my heart can change. What does James say? Somebody help me. He says, Do not be only hearers of the word, but also doers. With regard to encountering the truth, he said, Don't be like people who stare at themselves in the mirror and then turn away and immediately forget what they looked like. There is some elasticity to our stubbornness sometimes. Elasticity because we can flex in God's direction so that in the moment we tell ourselves, we have come all together, we've come around all together to do God's will. And the conviction and the fear of God is lifted. And then we spring right back to that old form, that old mindset. And so you can find yourself in this terrifyingly confusing place where God sent you to do something and then God stopped you from doing it. And then you 
can start to judge God, couldn't you? Come on. Wouldn't there be somebody in here who would be tempted to say, God, this isn't fair? You told me to go. You told me to do it. And now all I'm getting is opposition. Now that's the making of a disappointed life. That's the making of a disappointed person, a disappointed ministry. What's going on, God? You told me to go. And now you're trying to kill me for going? And God says, you just don't get it, do you? I don't want your legalistic, formulaic obedience. I want your heart. I want your motives. I want your inner thought. I want you to be so trusting and dependent upon me that you can say, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. But if I'm with you, then all things are possible. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, and you know when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar, and you scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Oh, God. That's what was going on with Balaam. God was searching him and knowing him. He was seeing the difference in his mindset when he was sitting down and when he was getting up. He was understanding his thoughts from afar. He was scrutinizing his path. And he was intimately acquainted with his way. And he had an angel there to kill him. <clears throat> Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold, lay hold of me. If I say, surely darkness will overwhelm me, the light Around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You see, if you want a relationship with God, 
then you're asking for scrutiny. The God with whom there is no variableness or shifting shadow. The God who sees right through all of the perfectly formed excuses and justifications and rationalizations. You're saying, God, I want to be known by you. Search me, O God. Try me. That word try me means let me go through hard things. Let me suffer trials that reveal the truth of what's inside. And see if there be any wicked way in me. You see, God was trying Balaam. And he found a wicked way in his heart. Not in the externals of his obedience. He was within the lines. Amen, brothers and sisters? But in his heart while appearing to walk in the lines, in his heart, he was departing from the living God. And God was searching him and knowing him. And he was saying, you are going to be an instrument of destruction to my people. And so I'm going to send an angel to deal harshly with you. But God in his complicated mercy opened the mouth of the donkey and restrained the madness of the prophet. Amen? Second Peter tells us it was a kind of madness that had taken hold of him. Are you listening to me? Have you ever been so sure you were right that you became kind of crazy? So possessed were you, were you with the certainty of your own perspective? Peter says that Balaam was mad. He was crazy. And that's what human beings look like when they become completely eaten up with the conviction that is based on flesh and not on God. The conviction that is based on God knows that it is of God, it is from God, and it is by God that we hold these things. And so it holds it with awe as a precious thing, bigger than us, beyond our control. But the convictions that are based on flesh are not like that. Mm -mm. They are tenacious. They are certain. They are unwilling to yield. Come on, James, what did he say? The wisdom that is from above is what? Peaceable and is willing to yield. Willing to be flexible. Is willing to be walking down the path that God told you you could go and stop and say, God, why do I not feel your spirit right here? And get down off the donkey and get down on your knees and say, God, I can't go forward. Like Moses said, Lord, don't send us unless your presence goes with us. Thank you, Jesus. But some of us have become comfortable. We have trained ourselves to do great things without God, without His Spirit, without the grace of His presence. So we don't even feel it. It doesn't startle us when we leave it. We don't even notice. And we are racing toward our disappointment, a cataclysmic letdown. It would have been better for Balaam 
to have been killed in the vineyard than for him to have survived to the next rebound of his carnal nature. Because there he laid out a strategy that caused all of God's people to sin. And he became the poster child for everything despicable in a gifted man who will not submit himself to God. There was another man who had the potential to be like Balaam. He was another prophet who made wrong choices and whose future and reputation and destiny hinged on split-second decisions. Do you know who I'm talking about? Someone who didn't feel like he had to be bound to do God's will outside of his own predilections. You know who I'm talking about? Who? That's right. Jonah. Do I still have your attention? What's the most often quoted phrase from Jonah? Could everybody hear him? Somebody else. What is it? Those who cling those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's an incredible statement, isn't it? Have you ever lived a life Devoid of the could-be grace? Have you ever gone through a season devoid of the could-be grace? The grace that could have been and might have been and would have been yours according to the Word of God? If you had just not clung to worthless idols, or as one translation puts it, vain imaginations, Amen? Now, Jonah, do you think he had an Asherah, Asherah pole set up in his living room? How about a Tammuz sitting there Indian style or Buddha style? You think that's what he had? What were his idols? Do you think he had a, a shrine to Baal over in the corner? What were his idols? What were Jonah's idols? What were the, the idols that Jonah clung to that caused him to forfeit the grace that could have been his, the grace to go to Nineveh and do the impossible? What were the idols? His own ideas, his own way. <laughs> the notion that says, I can hear from God and do it my way. He didn't have idols of brass or bronze or silver or gold. He had ideas. 
He had vain imaginations. And I think we could safely say that he missed his appointment originally, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, he did. And the appointment that he did make was not with the people of Nineveh. It was with a very hungry fish and the belly of hell itself. And there he sits with more excuse to be despondent than ever a man had who had failed God. There he sits, seaweed wrapped around his head, fish gut and fish puke all over him, pitch darkness, and he says, I'm going to brace myself for the hell that's coming. Is that what he says? No, he says, God, you're unfair. Hmm. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? He speaks out through the darkness to the God who can hear because he searches the deepest hidden things and he says, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord. That which I have paid, I will give. I will sacrifice to my God a thank offering in the presence of his people. He starts telling God, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it your way. And the fish starts getting a bellyache. Amen? Pretty soon he's got a second chance. That thing that doesn't come as often as we wish. A second chance. Round two at this opportunity. Amen? What an incredible thing. But he still had his own way really, really, really clear in his own thick head, didn't he? So much so that he almost turned his second opportunity into an equally big failure. He almost drowned in self-pity, not in the depths of the sea or in the belly of a fish, but out there on a mountainside under the hot sun. He almost drowned in his own self-pity. So addicted was he to the fantasy of his own way of how he thought it should be. That he could not be at peace with God's way. With how God thought it should be. Certainty is a powerful thing. Confidence is a powerful thing. But you better be careful where you invest that certainty and what you put your confidence in. Because if it is in the picture that your own mind can see or the plan that you have devised for yourself, you are clinging to vain imaginations. And those imaginings are like idols. And in clinging to them, you are not laying hold of the grace that you need to face what's coming. 
If you're disappointed, it's because you were too sure of yourself. You were too right. And you were blinded by the certainty of your own perspective. The man who is not disappointed is a man who has a wisdom that is willing to yield. A man who is flexible. Who is willing to be told go and then say, <clears throat> stop for just a minute. I just want to work on your attitude for a minute here. Not a man who says, God said go. Put this thing in four low. We're out of here. Amen? You're going to walk right past your grace. You're going to zoom right past the checkpoints that would show you where your load has gotten off balance and where it might pull you off the mountainside when things get hairy. Are you hearing me? I'm sorry if this is more blunt than you were hoping for. Jonah. Jonah. It's not like a ride to Tarsus is some awful thing, is it? Is it? See, we want to make categorical judgments, don't we? We want to say, never go to Tarsus. Never get on a ship. Huh? And if things go bad and somebody says, it's because you got on that stupid ship to Tarsus, Jonah, we say, where in the Word of God does it say that I can't get on a ship to Tarsus? Where in the Word of God does it say I can't go visit the upper country and go to that beautiful cliff where Balak lives? That's not the point. And if you want to hide behind that kind of stuff, then you can. But you're going to be keeping company with people like Balaam. The question is, does God have your heart? And are you walking in His Spirit? As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The sons of God are the ones who are not disappointed. The sons of God are those who receive the inheritance and they're not disappointed. Esau was somebody who was disappointed. And though he was a son, he forfeited his appointment, didn't he? Can you remember his disappointment? When he wept with bitter tears? When he begged for the blessing, give it to me. But in the immediacy of the moment, he preferred his own needs above his birthright. Do you remember when Esau sold his birthright? It was over lentil stew. Hard to imagine, isn't it? When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. For I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom means red, red stuff. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. 
It's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty easy swap there. I'll cook some lentils and you give me your birthright. Wow, amen. Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So what is my birthright to me if I am dead? And Jacob said, swear to me. Let's make this official, you swindler. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. So I want to just pass an edict from now on. No one is allowed to eat lentil stew. Everybody's like, wow. I was hoping I could have said that a long time ago to my mom. No one is allowed to eat lentil stew. Because that's how you sell your birthright. Is that right? Is that right? No, it's dead wrong. Is there anything intrinsically wrong with lentil stew? Some of you say, well, yes, of course. Have you ever tried it? <laughs> is there anything intrinsically wrong with lentil stew? Show me in the Bible where it says I can't eat lentil stew. I can't show you that place. The difference between a good thing and an idol is the priority you place on it. Did you hear me? The difference between a good thing and an idol that separates you from God, that you cling to and causes you to forfeit saving grace is the priority you put on it. And Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So is, let me just get this straight. Is Jesus categorically prohibiting burying one's father? Hmm? Is he prohibiting saying goodbye? Well, why does he speak like this? Because he's trying to wake people up that they don't choose grace on their own terms. That when it visits them, there is nothing more important in the world than to stand in the presence of that grace and go where it leads and do what it says and become what it empowers you to become. Amen? Saying goodbye is a good thing, but if it takes priority over your dependence on the grace of Jesus himself being with you, of God's presence in your life, then it becomes an idol. It becomes looking back while you're trying to plow. And you start plowing in circles, don't you? Amen? Burying one's father is a good thing. Eating lentil stew is a good thing. Depending on how it's seasoned. But when you put the priority on it that it doesn't deserve, it's an idol. I believe if we're honest and if we'd humble ourselves before God 
we would recognize that there was a time in our life when we were not ashamed of our total dependence on the Spirit, the Word, the grace of God. There was a time in short when, like King Saul, we were small in our own eyes. And when that time, when we were in that time, he gave us all the kingdom of Israel. Amen. But then if we would be honest further, we would acknowledge that somehow, somehow, on this path of doing God's will, we allow ourselves to take possession of God's thing until it becomes our thing. You with me? We don't walk in sensitivity. We lost our humility. We lost our dependence. And we just were walking in the certainty of our own flesh. I know this is God's will. Jesus said that's how some people will crucify his own followers, imagining that they do God a service, believing that they do God a service. But these are people who do not feel like Jonah felt when he was washed up onto that dry sand and he looked up into heaven and heard the voice of God saying, Jonah, arise, go to the city of Nineveh. If you're still here, if you're still hearing the word of God tonight, then there's another opportunity that's coming your way. There's a second chance that's about to present itself. And what God is wanting to know is are you clinging to your vain imaginations? Or are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Are you saying, God, my heart is desperately wicked. I cannot know it. Are you walking in that place of dependency where you say, God, apart from you, I can do nothing? Or are you saying, I heard God. I'm going to do this. Get out of my way. If that's the case, then time and time again, what should have been God's will is going to end in defeat, is going to end in disappointment. And if you can't stop, it's going to end in tragedy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I know how I can change and how fast my heart can stray. So empty me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with lowliness of mind, esteem others as better than yourselves. come back to that place where we say, I don't know even what I know if God's not here with me helping me know it. You follow me?
let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, God. Thank you, Jesus. You see, I want Balaam to go back when he's still in the vineyard. I want him to imagine what was God planning to do on this third visit? What did God have in mind? I want him to go back to that and believe for that. Not what did Balaam have in mind. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's like the Scotsman's stubborn prayer. Lord, please make my way your own because you know how hard I am to change. That's how some of us are. That's how Balaam was. We're still caught in the delusion of our own godhood. Do you see that? Are you somebody who could follow God in the way that we're describing tonight? Are you somebody who'd be too embarrassed to follow God in the way that we're describing tonight? Are you somebody that could hear God lead you in a certain direction and you start walking off and then stop? Lord, are you still with me? Or are you someone who long after the Spirit of God lifts, I'm going. After the checks, after the warnings, after the changes and the shifts that represent the lifting of God's presence. Because if you don't want to have that kind of walk with God, if you don't want that kind of dependence, you cannot be this kind of Christian. You need to be a legalist. You need to go find some boundary lines and live for your flesh like most Christians and pride yourself in being a good ethical person. But if you're someone who can take three steps and hear the Spirit say stop and then take three more and hear the Spirit say stop, isn't that what David was trying to do when he brought the ark back? Six steps and he stopped and made a sacrifice. He was trying to stay in the presence of God. Don't send us unless your spirit goes with us. And stop us when we get beyond it. Thank you, Jesus. 